Panyo and I met at the Oregon Humane Society. She was picked up as a stray in Merced, California. And since there are too many chihuahuas in California, they ship them up to Oregon sometimes because we cannot get enough. There's like a chihuahua train? There's a chihuahua surplus. Yeah, and so then, because there's high kill shelters and nobody wants chihuahuas because they're like infested with them. So they send them to Oregon and then they get adopted at places like the Oregon Humane Society where people love small dogs. You uh, you have a book about a dog yes. that you had. Yes. How long ago? Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, is about Beja, uh-huh. who I had for almost 16 years hmm. until 2013. I killed her the week before Calling Dr. Laura came out. <laughs> I put her to sleep. Sorry. I like scandalizing you. I'm sorry. Beja got to be a very old lady, and unfortunately, I had to put... I. It was so traumatic. I had to put her to sleep. It was like the week Dr. Colin, Dr. Laura came out. Yeah. Because she had just gone downhill and it was time. How did that impact your book tour? It was so crazy. Yeah. It felt insane. Like the day or two after she had to get put down, I had to do a live thing with Oregon Public Broadcasting, which is like our NPR affiliate, like a live interview for an hour in front of an audience that had like all gotten tickets for this thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like the day or two after my best friend had passed away. And I, I was like stage momming myself. Well, I was like Joan Crawford stage momming myself. I was talking to somebody recently about, about sort of like compartmentalizing tragedy and oftentimes a, how long it takes to actually impact you, and then B, once the realization that you have to go on with your life dawns on you. But it sounds like, I mean, in an instance like that, you were maybe able to prep yourself, right? I mean, you knew, you saw it coming. Kind of. I mean, kind of because we, you know, Beja had cancer, but everything had been chill. And she had gotten over her, she had had a surgery and went really well. She yeah. was doing awesome. This is all in the book. And no spoilers, but the dog dies at the end of the book. Um, but then she got this thing called vestibular, which is like dog vertigo. But it's really scary to see because they like fall over. Oh. And they walk in a circle and their eyes go crazy. Like it looks like they're having a stroke. Yeah. And it's the scariest thing to happen. And after that happened, she went downhill really fast. And so it was a little unexpected in that way. One of the many depressing things about having pets is you know how long dogs live. Yeah, give or take. Give or take. So, you know, once you get to around the, like, 15, 16-year mark, it's, like, pretty clear that... Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. You know, what was hard for me was, you know, people have, like, voices for their pets. (laughs) When Beja got to be a teenager, when she turned about 13, I started giving her the voice of, like, an insecure teenager Mm. who was really into Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. So Beja would be like, um, this is like really cool. Like Brian's really cool. I'm really excited. Like she was, she wasn't aged in dog years. No, she was aged in human years. So she was like the way I saw it because this character was so evolved in our home. Beja was like looking forward to her first kiss. Mm -hmm. Couldn't wait to get her learner's permit. Yeah. Was just a young girl coming into her own. And then (laughs) she happened to like, you know, have cancer and get this dog vertigo. And I was like, she's in the prime of her life. She's just starting her life. But in dog years, she was like 150 years old. But in her Taylor Swift persona, she was just a young gal. So it was a little bit, I had kind of, I kind of messed myself up a little bit by thinking of her in this way because she was so spry. You know, she wasn't like achy, creaky, moany, moany, joany, sleepy. Yeah. She was kind of still spry. Anyway. 
kind of messed myself up giving her a young a young girl persona. You know, I have rabbits, yeah. um, and I've actually had to go through this this twice. I was freelancing at the time, and you know, they wanted to keep her for a couple of weeks in intensive care and like give her drip. She was a twelve year old rabbit, so it was like how old, how long do they live? About that. Yeah. So it's it sounds really weird and harsh and cold, but you have to sort of do a cost benefit analysis at some point of like. You know, I was, I was like, I was ball, I was bawling in the vet office and I was actually talking to my mom on the phone at the time, which is like, I basically like needed some, some guidance of like how much, how much can I invest in this rabbit and like, what's her quality of life going to be? People won't tell you either. Yeah. People are such butthole. They're like, whatever you do is the right job. I'm like, Shh, shut up. Killer or not. Like, it's, yeah. the dog doesn't, or the rabbit doesn't understand what, why it's getting put on a drip, why yeah. it's away from you. They start with the platinum package, as they call it in car sales. Yeah. And then go from there. I think they do that because, you know, humans sometimes want to go to like, you want to go to great lengths to save your best yep. friend, but sometimes lengths that maybe are not so great for the animal. And I think people, they aren't squaring that. They're kind of like, well, here's the thing that might make this guy happy. Yeah. If we tell him we're going to do 50 billion tests, then maybe he'll feel like he's has some control over nature. But you you don't. And the animal sometimes is miserable. And if the animal had a say, they wouldn't be like, yes, please give me a liver bi- biopsy. I'm 150 years old. <laughs> it's it's the worst. I mean, it's it's the greatest gift you can give your best friend is to give them a dignified death and to end it before they suffer too much. And to be aware of the cost-benefit analysis of, like, their quality of life. Mm-hmm. There's health, there's worksheets people can look at online where you can assess their quality of life so that it's not just you being emotional. Yeah. It's, like, actually, like, tick off this box. Were you able to do that? Were you able to sort of look at it in terms of black and white and really... Well, you know what's helpful for me was realizing at some point my home had become a hospice and not a hospital. You know, it was like, she's not going to steer out of this. Yeah. End of life. It, like, this was a hospice situation there wasn't a turnaround where things were going to get significantly yeah. better. It was just making her comfortable. And so at a certain point, she was getting less and less comfortable. And they were like, oh, and then we could do these like invasive biopsies and tests. And I was like, and then what? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe she has like a 30% chance of living. And I was like, no. It was, I mean, it was, it was awful. But I had just, Beige, this dog is not in the book, but Beja's little sister, Wishbone, adopted sister. I had killed, Wish. I had had to put Wishbone to sleep. <laughs> You're really, you're really just sorry. like busting out the K word here. My friends made me stop saying that I murdered my best friend. My friends were like, please stop saying that. Wishbone had to get put down the month before. So we were a little bit practiced in it. My partner at the time and I. And so when the Beja thing happened, it was the worst. And I'm no, sorry, you had to put down two dogs within? A month of each other. And then the book came out and I just had to leave home. I like couldn't have a memorial service for Beja. I couldn't. I had to I had to like bury her in my friend's backyard and then leave for book tour like a couple days later. And nobody knew that she was dead. So people that knew me from Instagram were like, oh, I love the pictures of your dogs with their head in the stew pot. Uh, keep posting them. And I was like, I'll do my best. Like I just. Did you just not have the same kind of emotional connection with the other dog? Wishbone? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, one of them is the basis of a book. The other one didn't make it in. Oh, no. Wishbone. I had to edit all these other dogs out of the book because I wanted the book to have its appropriate emotional impact for how much impact Beja had on me. Yeah. So, like, I couldn't be having all these other dogs, like, kicking the bucket throughout the book and then have Beja die because you would be kind of immune to it by then. You really wanted to really kind of kick people at the end. Yeah. Well, and you're going to have to edit. If you're, 
especially like if you live in Portland and you're an autobiographer, there's so many people around that readers are going to get confused and they're going to be like, why is this, who's this person? And there's always a new person around. So you kind of have to edit down and make composite characters or be like, okay, this is going to be the friend that you see over the 10 years of the book. What was it about this dog specifically, given the fact that you had two at the time? And, mm. and, and from the sound of it, she wasn't necessarily, I mean, it's in the subtitle, What was the, not the she, greatest dog. She was the greatest dog. But maybe not to other people. Right, not to other people. To me. Yeah. I mean, between you and me and The Wall and Ponyo and your all your listeners, yeah. millions of listeners. Yeah, both of them. 2.5. Yeah. People. Million downloads a week. Two and a half. BlueApron.com. The two and a half men who listen to it. <laughs> BlueApron.com. Uh, put in Brian Heater <laughs> in the special box and get 10% off your first meal. Between you and me and the wall, Beja was a good dog to me. Yeah. The only reason that it's called How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home is because my literary agent suggested that as a title and it seemed to work out okay. But that certainly seems to be it was a good part of the narrative that yeah. people have when they approach the book. Yeah. That again, she had to warm up to you. Yeah. So Beja was more important than Wishbone because I got her when I was 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got her from a shelter in Kansas, a kill shelter in Kansas for my high school boyfriend. And then the last minute he wasn't allowed to have her. So then she ended up basically being my dog. And I had her through my whole life. So the book is part coming of age story, part dog story. She was a damaged dog. She kind of was like... You know, my ex-girlfriend put it nicely. She said it was kind of like Beja would have really benefited from having therapy, like talk therapy, Mm -hmm. if only she was a human. Yeah. But she was not. Do you feel like you found a part of yourself in this damaged dog? I do. I mean, looking back on it, having to create a narrative around her for the book, I really, in hindsight, was seeing that, like, we needed each other when we got together. Yeah. You know, and we kind of grew up together and... Having her grew me up fast. Like the reason the book exists, one of the reasons is Chris Ware. I was driving him somewhere when I was at Center for Cartoon Studies teaching. He was a guest. And I was driving him, and I was like, "Yeah, this dog is like the baby I had in high school." And he was like, "Oh, that might that would make a good line in a graphic novel." Hmm. This dog was like the baby we had in high school, and I was like, <gasps> "You know, like a hand just came down from the cartoon gods and told me what to do." That's sort of that's kind of like the songwriter approach of things of like keeping that notebook around and having mm-hmm. those lines and finding the ways they, they fit together. Did that line actually make it into the final? Yes. Yeah. I mean, because it was it was just how I would when I rambled about Beja because I had all this kind of un unchecked grief about her unprocessed grief because I had to leave home the minute she died. I just, uh, yeah, I put that into the book and I just kept telling people and eventually I stopped talking about her as much and just started drawing it. And at some point I did a little mini comic for people that had donated to her cancer fund. It was a wordless comic and my intern who I had made copies was like, I don't know what this book's about, but I think it's just a lot of crying and dogs. (laughs) Is that what it's about? I was like, yeah, "Yeah, more or less crying and dogs. Fetch is not just that. I mean, maybe at some point you'll shed a tear. You know, if you if you have a heart, but um, the book is f- otherwise fun, I think. Do you feel like it's your obligation to let people know what's coming at the end? I mean, there's that, that website, right? There's the, oh, the Dog Dies, the, the movie site. Are you familiar with no, this? No, what's that? There's a site that you can go to to find out before you watch the movie if the dog dies in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I can't believe, I have some friends that don't watch things because they get too upset if the animal dies. Well, I mean, for most people, it's more emotionally traumatic to watch an animal die in a movie than well, a person. Well, much more traumatic. Yeah. People but, are pretty expendable in film. But to me, I'm just like, what are, you, what are you a bunch of wimps? Deal with it. It's life. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm, you know what? I'm vegan, so I've had to watch some really intense animal, like animal torture porn propaganda kind of stuff to learn about different animal industries. 
Yeah, so I'm a little people bit are hardened. Able, pe- most most people can compartmentalize that, and most yeah. people can divorce a pig from a dog. I know that's unfair, and probably they're pretty equivalent. They're pretty equivalent, intelligence-wise. But you know, the the trauma of a dog dying is. But if it was your pet pig, if that was your Wilbur, yeah, listen, you'd be freaking and tweaking. I have a very strict. No, nobody's allowed to eat rabbits. Really? Yeah. When I'm. Have people tried? I, yeah, I've been at restaurants. Anytime I go to a restaurant and there's a rabbit on the menu, like I don't like I, I, I don't eat a lot of meat. I, you know, I eat fish and chicken from time to time, and I don't mind watching people eat beef. But like, out of respect, don't don't eat a rabbit in front of me. Have people fought you on that? No, I, I don't good. think there's been a lot of pushback on it. Well, come on, man. Yeah. I wanted to get the rabbit legs. I wonder if you went to a country where it was cool to eat dog. If you'd be like, yeah, let's try, let's try dog for the first time, or let's yeah. let's eat a horse. That's an exotic kind of meat. I mean, I would. I, I don't. Eat, I've been vegan for twenty years, so I wouldn't eat anything unless I was on the Amazing Race. But I, I don't. I guess I don't care anymore. If people eat a horse than if they eat a pig. I'm just like they're both. They're both intelligent. They're both, you know, emotional creatures that probably don't want to be hauled into a slaughterhouse. So. So you were 16 when yeah. when you adopted that dog? I don't think I would have been emotionally equipped to be a full-time <laughs> dog parent. It was intense. Yeah. I interviewed my high school boyfriend. So we we raised the dog together for a while before I got full custody. I interviewed Did you have him. to fight him in court for that? No. Surprisingly, this is in the book too. At some point, you know, we moved to Portland together. We ended up moving out of our parents' houses when we were, I was 16 or 17 and he was 17 or 18. Moved out of our parents' houses so we could get an apartment and keep the dog. And it basically was like we were like on our own. Our parents were like, we don't want this dog. Goodbye. Enjoy your life now. I guess if you go to college, you can't live in a dorm. I don't know. Good luck to you. At 17 or 18, you would not have moved in with a boyfriend had it not been for the dog. I don't think so. Even more so than I can't imagine, you know, taking care of a dog at that point. I, I definitely can't imagine living with a significant other at that age. Well, no, but also when you're that age, you don't understand how heavy it is to live with somebody. So you're just like, whatever. Yeah, sure. This sounds great. And we just want to, like, get out of our parents' houses in the suburbs of Kansas. Yeah. So we lived together. It was an excuse to do something that you were probably thinking was, about doing anyway. Kind of. I mean, it's kind of like getting married. I think yeah. living together is like getting married. And I think people don't act like it's that way, but I'm like, it is. I mean, you're doing all the same boner killing stuff in general, except for except for like having a shared bank account. You're still like mixing finances and farting in front of each other and seeing each other in ways that are yeah. not so great. And the magic, you're just like stripping the magic it's away. It's a really good way to accelerate, for better or for worse, to accelerate a relationship, to yes. really kind of hold its feet to the fire. Yeah. So we were, but we, so we lived together with the dog for a long time. And then we broke up and we still lived together, which is like the most lesbian thing I've ever heard of. Like we broke up and he moved to the basement of our house Mm. and I kept the room upstairs. He lived in the basement and we shared custody and he just sucked so much at it that I was like, if you don't start letting the dog out or pulling your weight, I'm going to take custody. And he was like, great. Yeah. Okay. You thought you were threatening him and you were actually taking a responsibility. Yeah. And so then the dog was totally my dog. I guess being in Kansas, maybe it's not as out of the ordinary to move in with somebody at, at 17 or 18, right? As it would... I don't know. I don't know what no. kind of Kansas you're thinking. I'm it's just thinking like... like I'm from like California and I live <laughs> in New York now and I feel like my idea of things are very... I didn't say you were moving in with, you know, your brother. I know. It's like, it wasn't like, like, oh, I got my license when I was 13 yeah. so I could drive a tractor and then my brother and I moved in together when yeah. we were 14. No, I mean, it was... My parents were Catholic. They wouldn't have let us move in together, but... They really didn't want to live with that dog anymore. 
And I was like, it's fine. He'll just sleep on the couch and pay equal rent. And then we'll like figure out going to college later. And they were like, oh, it sounds great. Peace. But it was it was like we were like united for this cause. I mean, we dated for like four years or something. And then we lived together for another two years after that. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, now when you're an aged person and your friends move in together and you see things implode in like six months. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was like. We're desperately in love and we're the only people we have for, you know, your first, it was like first love teenage style. It's interesting because I feel like at this point in my life, I'd be more willing to put up with things from somebody else living with them than I would have been at 18 or 19. Oh, I, I we, neither of us had any boundaries. You know, if things Again, were uncomfortable. That problematic. Yeah. So if things were uncomfortable, we just dealt with it. Whereas now, you know, as an older person, yeah. you know what you like, you know what you don't like. So you have have words around that. But when you're a teenager, like, it was like two feral animals moving in together. Being that's like, fair. Okay, and like, and like, this is my trash heap. That's your trash yeah, heap. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're more willing to live in filth yeah, or than like, maybe you will at this point in your life. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the only filthy part I think was the animals. Like we had ferrets. They're not in the book. We had ferrets and then we had the dog and just everyone was stinky. But I mean, we ourselves were pretty tidy. When was that point when you were driving Chris Ware around? At the Center for Cartoon Studies. How long ago was that? 2013. So calling Dr. Laura came. So Beja died. Yep. Wishbone died. Then a month later, Beja died. Who knew they liked each other? I didn't know. But Beja died. You felt like there was... Uh... I thought they were just roommates. But then after Wishbone died, Beja just like went downhill. When an old couple, when one of them passed. Yeah? Yeah. Do you think that, 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 that her death was Wishbone yeah. or he or she? She. She. Do you think her death accelerated things? Yeah, I kind of do. Beja or Wishbone died in the home. Like we got a home euthanizer to come so that, you know, it just was less traumatic for everybody. You know, she fell asleep on my chest and then she passed away. You can have somebody come to your house and kill your dog for you? This is the best. This is the best thing that anyone ever forced me to do is my sister gave me a lecture about it. And I'm really glad she did, which was you can get a home euthanizer to come to your house. So instead of your animal's final moment being them being like terrified, at a place they never liked, the vet's office, they can be like, you know, asleep on your couch and then somebody could come in and administer the drugs and you can have this peaceful home death, which is really, really nice. But it sounds like the initial germ of the idea was pretty soon after the dog passed. Yeah. I mean, because I just, because I didn't have a chance to memorialize her in any way in Portland because I left immediately. Mm -hmm. So the place where she and I had both grown up and like tons of people knew, everyone knew Beja. Many people had been barked at by Beja. Many people had tried to pet. Some people, you know, she would eventually, if you ignored her long enough, jump on your lap, lick your face, let you pet her. So she had a lot of close friends. So you had to kind of neg her a little bit? Yes. She had a lot of close friends that were in her inner circle. And they nobody got to memorialize her with me or share, you know, any kind of grieving moments because I just was workaholing on the road having to promote my book. And then I immediately and then I broke up with my partner while I was there. So within like a couple months, like killed the dogs, killed my relationship. And I so I was like, there's nothing left at home. I'm just going to do what have I ever wanted to do that I couldn't do because I had this dog that was not amenable to different situations. And I was like, I've always wanted to be a fellow at the Center for Cartoon Studies and or not always, but, you know, for a while. And so I went through CCS on my book tour and I was like, yo, I want to be the fellow. What do I do? Why does it seem like tragedy always hits at once? It seems like everything bad. I, I, I know. It, it, it's like real clean slate. Yeah. It's like your life can just. just yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder, I wonder how much of it is, you know, you kind of carrying some of that emotional weight onto other things. I mean, it's easy to when you're freaking out about something, when, when something like, you know, your dog dying is stressing you out. That's a pretty 
easy time to hole up inside yourself and that could signal the beginning of the end of a relationship. Yeah. I mean, our relationship, I think, had had a lot of struggles. But, I mean, having a family member die, yeah, which is kind of how it felt with the dog. Like, having the dog have cancer for a long time, having to take care of her on my own while my partner was touring all the time was really emotionally taxing in our relationship. So the emotional bank account was pretty low. Yeah. And then it was just the dog dying was like a sucker punch. And it just was like... Uh, we were both raw. I mean, she really took care of Beja at the end, too. So it was both of us. So you're driving the car and world-renowned cartoonist Chris Ware suggests this. It sounds like he wasn't even suggesting it so much as sort of he was just like tossing it off. Just kind of like <laughs> saying something out loud that he couldn't help. Did it seem at the time like that would be a thing that you would actually want to spend, like invest that much of your life writing about and in a sense revisiting? Yeah, because it just felt like, I, you know, I've been, you know what, Brian? I've been writing comics about this dog. Since I was 16. Yeah. Like, my first diary comics were about Beja. Were about me and Beja together when I was a teenager. And so I had been documenting our life together all this time. I'd already spent years mm. drawing our life together. And then it just made sense. You That's know? interesting. So you actually... Did you go back and reread that stuff? Yeah. Like, some of it's in the book. Like, yeah. I, I published a manifesto for her on her behalf when I was in my early 20s called I Am Not a Stuffed Animal. That was about how people feel entitled to receive enjoyment from animals that they see because they're like property. Mm -hmm. It's like a piece of property that they just get to go touch. And if they can't touch it, they're like, oh, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that dog? I can't touch it, but that, that's what I like want to do. you're probably not going to pet a baby. Right. Or like if, you, if the parents didn't want you to pet the baby, it would kind of make sense. Yeah. But people don't really, with dogs, people feel way more entitled. Yeah. And it ended up being, another thing I realized in 2020 vision was, or perspective. Hindsight. Was, hindsight. Was that it was a little bit of a feminist manifesto, too, because it's the same thing like when a woman's walking down a street and a man's yeah. like, hey, smile. Yeah. And you're like, I'm not here for you. I'm here for me. Like a dog is here. The do Like a dog wasn't born to a dog mother because she was like, I will help humans pet even more animals. Like they just they're animals that exist for their own purposes. And dogs happen to be, you know, human human oriented. That kind of feeds back into that. I that that the subtitle or that idea of of her being a bad dog she yeah. was just kind of standing up for herself when strangers would approach her yeah like she was shy she had been abused not by me but she had been abused you know in her previous life she was shy she was fearful she wanted to smell people but she didn't want them to pet her yeah it freaked her out and people could not get it through their heads they would be like this dog's cute it's a Sharpe Beagle Corgi mix with a wrinkly face and huge ears and short stubby, stumpy legs, legs. Yeah. it's sniffing me so I think I should pet it. Yeah. And then I would be like, don't pet the dog. And they would be like, don't worry, I've got this. I'm Dr. Doolittle. And then they would go to pet the dog and then she would bark at them. And then people would be like, your dog's crazy. Why do you have such a crazy dog? You're crazy. Your dog's crazy. People would yell at her. They would get embarrassed. They would get insulted. And they... Was it clear yeah. from the outset that she was going to be that way? You know, I didn't know any better. Like, you know, dog books now, dog books say don't pick the shyest dog. Sure. Don't pick the dog that's in the back of the kennel antisocial, but that was the dog that I felt bad for. And that's a dog that no one else is going to pick. Yeah. And then I saw she had a euthanasia date on her little tag, and I was like, oh, I got to get that dog. This was at the no-kill shelter? This was at a kill shelter oh, okay. in Kansas. It was like oh, she's of, from the, okay. the shell Ponyo's from, uh, from the Humane Society, yeah. which is like a... They work really hard to move dogs around so that yeah. even if they run out of space for them, they can take them to dog rescues that are no-kill. If did you can. did you know like going in that you were not going to leave there without a dog? Was it one of those situations? 
when I got Beja? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I went for Christmas for my boyfriend, whose name in the book is Tom. And I, yeah, I was like, we're going to find the dog. Like, I had gotten a job at Toys R Us so I could earn the money to adopt a dog. It was like $40. And my I got paid like three seventy five an hour, I think. At toys, maybe three fifty an hour. I can't remember. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go get a dog. He wants a dachshund. And I want a Sharpay. And then they said he was a, that Beja was a dachshund Sharpay. So I was like, this is it. This is the dog. Yeah. My mom and I put her on hold. We made an app, fake application that said she was a family pet, not a gift. And then I went back to get her and she was afraid of me. And I was like, oh, no, she's afraid. And, you know, I had to, like, grab her. She was, like, hiding under a table because she was afraid of everything. But then she just became my best friend. Do you think that your relationship was stronger because she didn't get along with anyone else? I think that she... I mean, this is, you know, now you have the most social Now I have the most social dog in the world. Were we closer because... It sounds like that was part of what bonded the two of you. I mean, I have, I, I had a similar, I had a similar situation with uh, Lucy, my rabbit now, where I found her on PetFinder and then there's a uh, PetSmart at Union Square. I mean, it's, it's still the adoption agency, but they like bring you downstairs and there's like a little, they put you in a puppy pen and you sit down in the middle and they put the rabbit in and... When I got there, they said, oh, by the way, this isn't in the profile, but we should probably tell you that we tried to adopt her out to three or four places, and she she just was fighting with people and being, oh like, God. really antisocial, like, grunting, and, and they called boxing. So they, like, sort of lashed their, their paws out, and I was like, oh, I was sort of dealing with something similar that you were dealing with after the, the passing of, of your dog, but, you know, my rabbit had... my. Uh, other rabbit had died not long before that and i had just gone through a really bad breakup and i had gotten laid off from a job and was like freelancing and i got there and was like this is exactly the last thing i need in my life right now is this is a problematic rabbit yeah but i had already gone all the way to manhattan so i was like i'll, <laughs> I'll just go and meet this rabbit and i go into the cage and i sit down and she like hops up to me and lies down next to me so i was like I guess I guess we're in this together now. Oh god. And and I think that you do get I think you do get more of a bond when you really have to work for it. Yeah, I mean I don't know, I it's possible. There's it feels definitely more a reward. valuable to the person who's doing the work. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. When 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 you know you have this sort of like potentially problematic... Hi, what? Does she have a little sore spot there or something? Sometimes when I grab her side she gets a little Yeah. She gets a little, but if you just like scratch her butt or scratch, yeah, I think it's like anything else in life. It feels a little more rewarding when you have to work for it. Yeah, I, you know, I feel both ways. I feel like I've had a lot of problematic pets. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of pets that were special needs in different ways, and so I felt that kind of like, yeah, he likes me, like that feeling and liking that they trusted me. You know, I'm like, oh my god, this animal trusts me. Like I'm worthy of their trust. I'm touched. But I also now don't have. You know, after Beja died, like when I went to get Ponyo, I was so unaccustomed to having just like an easy dog Yeah. that I, it was kind of the inverse of that where I was like, God, anybody could have this dog. I should just give her away. <laughs> like, because like, you're clearly somebody who, who will work for it yeah. and there are other people who won't. And I, so I got her and I was just like, this dog could go to literally any home. Like she yeah. could be living in the suburbs. She could be in a home with kids. And when I got Ponyo, she's in the epilogue of the book, mm-hmm. but when I got her, I took her to the river and, you know, I'm vegan, so I give her, like, the shittiest. Like, you know, I was giving her, like, injera from the Ethiopian restaurant mm-hmm. as a treat. And this family was there, and they were giving her roast beef from their Subway sandwiches. And she pretended like she didn't know me. 
<laughs> I was like, come on, let's go. And yeah. she was like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. It's like my her new family. affections are not hard to earn. And if it hadn't been awkward, I was going to ask those people if they just wanted her because they liked her so much and they were giving her roast beef. So she was like into them. And I was like, I don't even need, I was like, why did I even get a dog? I was like too, too tore up over Beja. I was like, I should just give her to these people. But I didn't because it seemed like a really awkward thing to say to some people. Like, I think you probably would have felt really bad. I mean, even if they <laughs> I, wanted her of just abandoning yeah. a dog. But how, how soon afterwards did you adopt this one? Um, Like maybe three or four months after okay. Beja, which was way too soon. Yeah. I kept going to the Humane Society and then crying in the parking lot. Yeah. Humane Society walking in the door and then coming out and crying in the parking lot. And my friends were like, what are you doing? Get yeah. out. Get out of there. And But then... Right before I left for White River Junction for CCS, where I met Chris Ware, a poodle hoarder got busted, and the Humane Society was swamped with poodles. And my friends all knew I was looking for a poodle. So all the people that had told me not to get another dog started sending me articles about these poodles to be like, you got, maybe you got to get a dog before you leave Oregon. The universe is telling you that you need to get a dog. But I went to see this poodle, and he's... He just he peed on the floor in front of me, and then he went to he went and fell asleep in a chair. He didn't care that I was there. We had and no, you weren't like that's the dog for me. I was just like you, I was like you suck, man. Like I don't. Yeah. I needed somebody that I that would listen to me because I had a lot of grief over Beja. I wanted a dog that I could just like hold them and be like, and then she, yeah, Beja did this, then that, and this dog was not doing it. And then the woman at the Humane Society was like, and you know, dogs that are rescued from hordes are the hardest to house train because they've been taught to go indoors. And I was like, you know what? That, I just had a base, a nominally housebroken dog for like 15 years. I can't. And also, no like, more. I'm in a, about to do a bunch of traveling, so that's going to yeah. be a, a lot of added stress. No mas. So then, but the person was really pushing Ponyo. She was like, "Have you met Margaret?" That was her name. Yeah. Margaret's the best dog, and I was like, "Ew, Chihuahua, yuck!" <laughs> and then I held her on her back, and she started smiling and basically fell asleep in my arms. And I was like, "Oh, what? Yeah, this is possible." And so then I got her, and so now. You know, she's a different dog than Beja, but we have a deep connection. I didn't have to. She actually had to work for it. I was a difficult dog. Like I didn't love her, love her for like probably like six months. Like I just liked her. She was just fine. I had just agreed to take her. So we were just companions. But then maybe like six months in, I started letting her sleep under the covers. Is it like a relationship from the standpoint of you don't want to rebound immediately? Yeah. Well, to me, I, I just I, I like the dog whisperer. I know different people have different feelings about him, but. He says, you know, like when your dog dies, you have weak energy and mm-hmm. the dog needs you to be the pack leader. So if you're in grief and you you're, have unstable, weak energy and it's not a great time to bring a dog into the mix. But I did it. Yeah. It turned out okay. Yeah. Because I picked a good dog and here's how to pick a good dog or a rabbit or cat is listen to the people that work at the shelter. You know, if you're like, okay, I work this many hours a day or here's the emotional resources I have. Here's the time I have. Here's whatever. If you tell them your things and then you ask them who is compatible without getting wooed by their sob story or their breed or whatever, you can find a really good pet. It's sort of like, you know, that that whole thing of going to the doctor and, you know, you don't want to tell the doctor what drugs you've done in the past month or what you've had to drink. You want to sort of dress yourself up and make yourself sound better. Yeah. And you probably, when these people are like, how much time? Oh, I've you know, I work from home. I've got all the time in the world. Yeah. I'm fully willing to emotionally commit. But you have to be honest with yourself. Be, be honest with the doctor because yeah. those things all matter. If you're like <laughs> smoke pot every day and you go to the doctor and you're like, I don't know why I'm depressed. Yeah. I don't know. Literally I'm coughing a lot. I have no, no idea. Literally no reason why I'm depressed yeah. and coughing. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's the same. It's like, be honest with yourself. Be honest with the people at the pound. It's okay. Like you're a fit parent for somebody, but not everybody. And it's worse for the animal if you 
take them home and have to return them because you lied about how much you're home and you get like a super smart dog or a dog that needs a lot of exercise then they rip up your house. What's the process for actually starting on something like that? I know, like you said, you what had you all this backlog that you had written about the dog, but to actually deal with something that you know is probably going to be tough to live through, again, emotionally. Like, how do you actually sit down in earnest and start working on it? I'm just, I'm just like a soldier. After the Dr. Laura book, I feel like you're probably open for just about anything. That really fucked up your whatever relationship you had with your mom, right? No. I mean, she fucked up our... No, she but had, I yeah, mean, like, know. whatever was, like, left of it, it, like, it didn't help. She's kind of fine. Yeah? It's kind of fine. Actually, it changed my family life for the better. Immediately, there, it sounds like immediately Well, she was... did give me that one-star Amazon review. She did give me my only one-star Amazon review, if that's, if that's yeah. what you want to know. But um, it was fine. It just it had to happen. I just yeah. feel like I love that Carl Sagan quote that says, if it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. Yeah. And it just is the truth. I'm just like... Here's the thing you did. I'm just saying the thing. Things have gotten better since then? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just better because before our family was like a tightly wound coil around a lie. Yeah. And everybody was anxious and uptight about it and like guilty or anxious or having lots of different feelings because everybody was implicated in this one person's big lie. And so then by me just saying it out loud, everybody else started to unspool and be like, oh, now we can have an honest relationship or oh... Now I feel validated to see like this experience we've been keeping a secret for a dozen years is now out there. And so a lot of people felt relief and it brought me closer with a lot of family members and helped them become closer with their family members. You know, like my sisters have a different dad than I do and like extended family members all read the book and everybody felt relieved in some way. Did starting autobiography, did that start as a way to kind of exercise some of those issues? I didn't think so when I started, but it turns out like these horrible graphic novels i mean horrible because it takes like years and years and years and you're like hunched over a table reliving your worst memories Mm -hmm. for like six to eight hours a day for a significant amount of time it's not just like (laughs) writing it it's writing it and then having to draw every single panel yeah i I have to say with both books i have budgeted therapy and i've budgeted bonus therapy into the process in terms of actually seeing somebody yeah does it help when when you're when when you're working through it so closely? Does that actually help the process of going to see a therapist? Are you able to just be like, hey, here's all of the things I've been dealing with? I don't know. I mean, I always love seeing a therapist. Yeah, it's, it's almost like doing like homework. It's you're doing a lot of homework, and you're you're working through everything in slow motion, and you're having to look at it from a lot of different angles yeah. and see what your part was in it, so that you're not drawing yourself as like some perfect superhero, unbelievable being did you it's better for the narrative if you're flawed too so it's like seeing your own flaws did the act of actually doing dr laura cause you to rethink your relationship and the role that you played in these different things yeah like in calling dr laura i was really careful every time i drew my mom or my ex-girlfriend doing something shitty i made sure i drew them doing something good or nice or not shitty because that's how people are yeah no one's one or the other and then Every time my girlfriend did something shitty in the relationship, I tried to be like, well, what's, how did I act crazy in that moment? Or like, why was I adding to this? How was I adding to the situation? Or what was I putting up with in this situation that I knew I shouldn't be putting up with? Or, you know, what was my part? Yeah. And then I tried to write that stuff in there. After having dealt with that, writing about your dog's death must have just been a breeze. It was so awful. It was, it was awful. I don't. I don't know what the cure is for being a cartoonist. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Writing about other people. Maybe like 
selling the rights and getting a movie made and then like taking the money and going to Hawaii is like the cure for being a cartoonist. Sure. You know, I mean, you kind of sentence yourself to this because you are writing about your own life. And not only are you writing about your own life, but it's certainly in, in the case of this book, like pretty soon after it happens. For a lot of people, there has to be a big deal of emotional distance between the event and it happening. Well, I mean, this book took about four years. But so, you I started mean, was, it pretty quickly after. I started quickly after, but like I started it, I mean, the book spans 16 years. So I got to have kind of a backlog of experiences and stuff before I got to the present day stuff. And the present day stuff, mm. it wasn't anything that I needed a great perspective on. Like, it was better for me to draw about her having cancer while it was still raw because it was more... It just made the book more bloody, you know? You know, like, there's, like, the old saying, people are like, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. And if yeah. I had written her death from a safe distance of no feelings, it would have been different. I mean, I did have to edit a lot of the newer cancer stuff. I mean, I don't want people to come away from this thinking this whole book's about dog cancer and that they don't want to pick it up because it's depressing, because it's totally not. Yeah, there's certainly that aspect. Yeah, but it's like, you know, sunrise, sunset. You're going to have a pet. It's probably going to pass away at some point. This is a book that I wish had existed before I had to go through that process because it's really hard to find any way to navigate and you feel so alone in the process. Clearly, by the time you had really started this book, you were already on your way to to having other dogs to to sort of re knowing that, you know, you would kind of have to live through, through that again. But that that's part of, I'm not saying there necessarily needs to be a moral or a lesson from the book, but that kind of is inherent in there of living through this again. It's a way of coming to grips with the fact that, yeah, that it, this absolutely was worth it. That that sure, like the really shitty, horrible things are the most recent in your mind, but you actually get to go through the, the good times again. Yeah. I mean, she was the best dog. We had so many nice times. I, I called a lot of people that had been close to her at different points in her life you know, and interviewed them for the book. Yeah. Just, and the interviews aren't in the book, but just kind of folding that into the narrative. Or I, what's an interview or, with somebody about your dog? How does that go? Well, so I would tell them that's what I was doing. Yeah. You know, and then I would say, like, okay, do you remember the first time you met Beja? And everybody remembers. And I'm like, do you remember the, you know, what did you think of Beja when you first met her? Do you remember, like, what did you think she looked like? Because people would say lots of people were like, she looked like she had her. She looked like somebody who had gotten into a car wreck and had their face through the windshield because she had scars all over her face from starting dog fights and losing them. Um, or people would be like, she looked so funny. She looked like the flying nun. She had such floppy lips and a puffy face because she was part Sharpay. And, you know, people would be like, oh, I remember when I first met Beja, I thought she was funny looking. Or I would say, do you remember the first time Beja let you pet her? Mm. People have lots, like people would go to dog sit at my house and Beja wouldn't let them in the bed like at night. When it was time for them to go to bed, she would just lay on the bed and growl at them and they were afraid of her. There's a lot of different stories. Yeah. People would always be like, people always remembered me having a lot of boundaries around the dog. That was something that people brought up a lot. But I brought this up. I forgot to tell you. My ex-boyfriend, quote unquote Tom, I interviewed him for the book and he was like, yeah. He's like, at the time when I interviewed him, he was like, I think I'm like, he's like, I'm 35 now. I think I'm just now mature enough to have a dog. Yeah. He's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. We didn't have a plan when we were getting the dog, but we just didn't want her to get put to sleep. And that was our plan. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the way that these people all interact with the dog is it's because because of you, you're the yeah. you're the, the conduit there. And and part of them describing their memories of the dog were the ways in which she impacted you, like yeah. you having boundaries around her. Yeah. Well, yeah, people remember us together. I'm like, what are yeah. your memories of Beja? I'm like, what are your memories of me and Beja? But she 
she kind of defined you a little bit for the time. You know, you had this, obviously you were, you felt protective of her mm-hmm. and you know, the ways you interacted with people in a way were kind of filtered through her. Yeah. I just, you know, it was, it's weird living in Portland. Like I didn't feel unfriendly. It, it was, you know, just kind of a, it was like a screen. Like it was like a screening process. Like people that didn't understand boundaries. Yeah. yeah. They just couldn't. You were vetting come people in. through the dog. I didn't realize it at the time, you yeah. know. And I feel like when I was rewriting the book and trying to think about like her quote unquote bad qualities, I was like, it seems like we had an unfriendly, isolated life, but we really didn't. Yeah. Just as we vetted people out that just like could not get it through their skulls, what the deal was. So how is having the nicest dog in the world? How has that impacted that? It's it feels crazy to have the nicest dog in the world. Ponyo's tag is like the friendliest dog in town, nicest dog in the world. She loves everyone. Yeah. I just made her business cards because she meets people on her own like at the airport and stuff she'll like meet babies and kids and she's forced you to be more social no i mean i don't know she just she just comes with me i'm kind of just as social as i am but i don't have like a bonus albatross i don't have like a bonus barrier like she's a little bit like a second wife sometimes i see she's like easy she's simple you don't feel like you're like a, a markedly different person no i mean except for i'm older and i've had more therapy than when i had the dog and we were both like scruffy teenagers from kansas so maybe just like based on ponyo's less punk based on life events maybe you're just a more sociable person yeah yeah that's what i I think i'm probably a more user-friendly person in the world just because i'm an older person now and like evolved a little bit but that's the thing about dogs is unfortunately they can't they can't evolve that much they don't they don't get older you know, so I got older. Well, they do, sadly. But I mean, like mentally, like yeah. I got older, I got therapy, my brain continues to change and evolve. Yeah. I get more mellow, but a dog kind of, they're always going to have those same triggers, whether or not you manage them. There you go. That's friend of the podcast, Nicole George. Her new book, Fetch, is out now. As she mentioned toward the end of that interview, it's uh, not as overwhelmingly depressing as we perhaps painted it to be during this conversation but if you found the interview difficult to get through because of the subject matter then you know be uh, be warned it does uh, deal with uh, with some some difficult issues as they pertain to owning and loving pets you can also check out her podcast it's sagittarian matters uh thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you've got any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. Like us on Facebook. And uh, I think that's about all I got for uh, for this week. So uh, thank you so much. Happy, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of our American listeners. And um, happy to podcast listening to uh, everybody else I suppose in the rest of the world Uh, we will be back with you in uh, as a matter of fact in a few days with another episode of R.A.Y.L. 